we're, we're going to finish up. Uh, well, not finish up. We're going to continue in Ephesians. And before I get started, I do want to frame where we are and why we're looking at the, the next section in Ephesians, the way that we're going to be working through it. I've asked Felicia to put the text that we're working through at the bottom on page three. And so you'll notice that we're going to read Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Then we'll skip to 431 and, and finish chapter four and go into chapter five. And that's not normally how we read through scripture here. We normally will read a section at a time and work through that section. But I made a case to you last week. I think Paul is a, a genius in the way that he, he unpacks the implications of the gospel. So Ephesians 1 through 3, God has saved you. He's done these things. Ephesians 4, this is what it means to live like it. And I made the case to you last week that Paul is not writing some new ethical standard for this new church. And you got to think about how important it is for this church to be a new church, right? If you think Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus or if it's a circular letter that, that went throughout churches in Asia Minor, what we do know about these churches is that they were multi-ethnic, that they were cross-cultural, that Jews were in these churches as well as Gentiles. And Jew and Gentile, they were not raised the same. Their ethical standards were not the same. Their knowledge of the one true God was not the same. Well, how then will this new church composed of people with various backgrounds, how in the world will they move forward and stay in step with one another? Whose culture would, would, would be the ethic of the community? In other words, if I do this, how do I know that this is a violation of the, the standards of the community? What Paul does is basically tell them that Jewish culture does not win the day, Gentile culture does not win the day, the ethical standard for God's people is not something new. It's something old. He appeals to the same Ten Commandments that Moses was given on the Mount, on Mount Sinai. In other words, Jesus has come and he has delivered you from the penalty of the law. You cannot keep the commandments. I cannot keep the commandments. Jesus kept them. He, he honored them in deed and in thought. And then he went to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for our disobedience. But let us not make the mistake and think that because Jesus has saved us from the penalty of the law, that the law is no longer important. It is important. It is how we're conformed to the image of Christ. You want to know what it means to be holy? Look to Jesus and look to the law that God gave Jesus. That is to shape our behavior. Now, the reason we're going to look at this section this way is because of this right here. All right, bag up. Uh-oh, where are we at? All right, so I know it's too little, but the, I, I told you last week that when you look at, the, look at the top left, put away falsehood, that's the first commandment that Paul gives them. It's, a, it's an imperative. And notice everything in that section under that, 429, 5, 4, 5, 6, these are all... Uh, behaviors he's commanding and have to do with the tongue, right? Look at the next section. Be angry, but do not sin. That's the section that we're looking at this morning. Look at do not steal. Work with your own hands and have money to give those in need. Then Paul talks about sexual immorality in Ephesians 5, 3, 5, 22 through 24. Then he talks about not being covetous, right? That's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 and verse 5. Then he rounds it out with children, obey your parents. Now, that looks arbitrary because of the structure, but notice how every single ethical commandment he is commanding, 
they can be traced to a Ten Commandment. The, the last six commandments teach us how to love our neighbor. Love God with your whole heart, whole mind, whole strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love your neighbor? By honoring your father and mother and all who are in authority. How do you love your neighbor? By not taking his life. How do you love your neighbor? By not committing adultery. How do you love your neighbor? By not stealing from your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? By not bearing false witness against your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? By not desiring what is your neighbor's. In other words, what Paul does in Ephesians 4, 25 through 6, 2, is he basically puts the law. And so the reason we're going to read this passage the way that we're reading it this morning is because this section has to do with our anger. All right. Thank you, Jimmy. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we turn our hearts to your word. Would you speak through your servant that you might show us how to love that you might call us to repentance, that you might uh, help us to forgive and to forbear, help us to, uh, by the Spirit, uh, love and treat one another in a manner that honors you and bring glory to the Father. Speak through your servant, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. So I'm going to read at the bottom. Be angry, but do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. I think what I want to do is look at this passage under three headings. The first heading is the surprising sphere or sphere or arena, if you want to, the surprising arena. Let's put it, let's use that word, right? The second one is the dangerous path. And the final point will be uh, the beautiful cure for our anger. First thing is the, su the surprising arena that I think if, if you were to read this passage, let's say in your quiet time one morning and you kind of read over and you got to Ephesians and you, you, read, you read this passage where he says, uh, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then you were to read at the end of the section, be kind to one another or let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. I don't know about you, but when I'm spending time with the Lord, like in terms of... Uh, uh, oh, the arena of, of this commandment, I think it might be tempting to read this and to think that God is giving you tips on how to control anger. And, and, and you get up and you, you, you read this and you pray and you go to work and then you, you're irritated by your non-believing co-worker, right? And all of a sudden this passage sort of comes to mind. Okay, the Lord just told me to not be angry, right? I think we can take the, the, the arena of this commandment and put it out there in the world or out there amongst unbelievers. But I think that would not do justice to what Paul is doing. In other words, is the arena our anger towards non-Christians in the world or is there a different arena? Is that arena actually in the church? In other words, is he talking about anger between believers, between brothers and sisters, or is he talking about anger generally? Or is he talking about anger with people in the world? And the case that I want to make to you is the arena of this conversation is not in the world. He's talking about anger with your brother and sister in the church. 
He's talking about anger between Christian and Christian. Now, here's the question. How do we know it? We know it because if you look in Ephesians chapter 4, 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, right? And then look at what he says after that. For we are members one of another. So right there, you might think that he wants you to think about outside. And I'm not saying that what he's saying doesn't have bearings out there, but don't miss what he's saying. He's talking about speaking the truth within the body of Christ. We're members of one another. We are not members. We're not yoked up with non-believers, right? So notice again at the end of our passage, it says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another. That phrase, one another, is used three times in this, in this passage. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about behavior within the covenant community. In other words, this isn't about just being angry at your non-believing boss. This is about being angry with somebody on your pew, right? Somebody in this pulpit or somebody behind you. I hear you, Tasha. Right? You get it? The, the, the arena, the arena is not out there. The arena is in this room right here. Now, does that surprise you that Paul would actually have to tell Christians, right? He's telling believers, be angry and do not sin. He's telling believers, right? Forgive one another because obviously there is an offense committed between brother and sister in the Lord. Does that surprise you that God would actually have this in the Bible where he would actually put this in there as a warning, basically telling you, look, y'all ratchet, you know? <laughs> and y'all are going to get on each other's nerves, right? And y'all are going to hurt one another and you're going to offend one another and you're going to betray one another and you're going to misspeak to one another and you're not going to be present when people want you to be present and you're going to trip over your words. Right. You get it. He's talking about the anger in the church and he's actually saying you will. We will run into those moments where we're into it, not with the world, but with one another. Now, here's the question. Some of you, I see your heads and you're already shaking. And some of you are saying amen because some of you are already angry. And the moment I talked about that, you could pinpoint somebody in this room right now that you have been angry with. For whatever reason, good or bad, right or wrong, let's just not pretend, right? Let's just be really honest that you've probably been hurt by someone in this room or in your growth group. You get it? Or in your Bible study or who didn't come and visit you when you were sick, or who said something that you didn't agree with, or you followed them on Instagram and Twitter and they posted something and you're like, how, how foolish is that? You get it? Now, you might be the one or two people in this room that cannot relate to that right now, right? And here's why you probably can't relate to it. You probably can't relate to this anger because of time. You just hadn't been here long enough. You just, you ain't been here long enough. Like, let's be honest. You're new, you're bright eye, you're bushy-tailed, redeemer, I'm going to come here and be a part of this church. And you have these really lofty and high expectations and everything is great. And I'm just telling you, right, just give it some time and put some roots down here and don't kind of blow with the wind and go find you another church. When somebody upsets you, just kind of stay here for a while. You will be angered by something. Just, I promise you, just give it time. If not time, right, just stop pretending, you know, like you got to remember to keep your voice 
and you have, you have value and you have opinions and you have strong theological convictions and you have good desires. And here's what I want to do. I don't want you to silence any of that for the sake of, uh, of unity. I think, remember what we talked about last, a few weeks ago, unity does not mean that we agree on every single thing, that we can be unified around the essentials and still have diversity, right? Just don't pretend. Another reason this might not apply to you is if, if you're not proximate. In other words, if, if you aren't near people. You see, it's really easy to come to church on a Sunday and then to go home and to speak and smile and act like everything's okay, right? That's, that, that's easy. And if that's the way you sort of view church, well, I'm going to show up to this event and we're going to pray and praise and give and listen, and then I'm out, of, I'm out of here on the door, you are not proximate. What I mean by that is you're not living near Christians. And if you're not living near Christians, that means that you're, you're not engaging Christians and you're not having promises made that people under deliver and you're not getting a chance to hear different worldviews and perspectives. You're not giving, giving yourself a chance to hear how culture has been formed and shaped outside of your culture and your, you get it? But if you're not proximate, you can come in here and just do this and this looks really beautiful. And I'm just telling you, like, or you might be selective in who you're spending time with, right? What, what do I mean by being selective? I mean, you're only spending time with people in here who have the same worldview and who have the same income level and who are the same age or you are in the same stage in life. Here's the thing. The, the moment you, you and I start to be unselective and let Jesus sort of frame up this body where people from all backgrounds and experiences are coming together and we're being really intentional about doing life, the moment that you do that, I promise you, you will be disappointed. Most of you know that for, for nine years I did college work and, and Cyril's going to be ordained next week and Tasha and Trey and Carlin that, that they're, they're doing a really good work. Here's the thing. I'm 39. I left Jackson State two years ago. How a 37-year-old and a 19-year-old view time, it's like night and day. Look, I got two kids and a wife who works part-time. And so my view of time is, okay, I get up at 6, I get my kids, uh, I, get, I iron their clothes, I make sure they get dressed, and I drop them off to school every morning, right? I get them, we, we, we have our time together and we get them out of the house. And then I know like, hey, they get off the bus at this time. And so when I was at Jackson State, I would basically plan out my week and I'd be like, hey, we're gonna meet on Tuesday at eight o'clock, all right? I get you, eight o'clock, we good, we good, we good, Pastor Ella, eight o'clock. I will line somebody else up, okay, nine o'clock, we good, nine o'clock on Tuesday. You're gonna come right after this other dude, all right, you got it? 10 o'clock to 1 o'clock, right? That, that's my study time. I'm going to close the door. Nobody's going to come in there, right? And then at 1 o'clock, I'm going to start getting ready for small group. And small group starts at 2 o'clock. And at 2 o'clock, somebody's going to have the door unlocked for the, the small group. And when I get there, people are going to be there and they're going to be waiting. And then at 3 o'clock, I can leave the campus and get home by 327 to get my son off the bus, right? I'm an adult. That's how adults think, right? <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm rushing to campus for an 8 o'clock meeting, and dude texts me at 8.17, Pastor L, I can't make it this morning. I'm like, what happened? Man, I got this assignment. Didn't you know the assignment was due yesterday, bro? 
All right, so then by 9 o'clock, he texts me at 9.37, Pastor L, I overslept, I'm late. And I'm like, man, then he shows up at 9.37, and he wants to meet. And I'm like, dude, like, I got 23 minutes to meet. I got my study time. Oh, man, you can study a little later, can't it? Right? So I, I finally concede and, and go give in to this and, and, and meet with him. Then at 1037, I'm closing my door, and then my 8 o'clock shows up, right? <laughs> you get it? And I go to op- go have small group, and, and Jackson State hadn't opened the building, I mean, opened the room. And so I'm running around trying to find a key because somebody said they were going to open the key, but I'm, I don't work for Jackson State. I'm just a, I'm a volunteer. So their motivation to open the door wasn't always the highest. You get it? So you go through a whole day of interacting with different. We're in a whole different age group, whole different values. They don't care about what I'm doing. They don't see my worldview. You get it? Then it's easy to be angry. You're working with 19-year-olds who don't have kids and they aren't married. They don't have families. They're not on a schedule. They're just kind of drifting and flying, right? (laughs) College students, I love you. I love you. I promise. But part of what you got to do is kind of grow up a little bit. But that's a a whole other question. But here's the point. If you're unselective with who you spend time with and you're unbiased, and you're proximate, and you're near, and you stay anywhere for any amount of time, you will be angered by the church. It will happen. Now, why does Paul make a big deal out of anger? Why does he say put away anger, put away bitterness, put away malice? These are just feelings, right? These aren't behaviors. These are just feelings. You mean to tell me that the gospel wants to get down in there with how I feel, not just what I'm doing, but what's going on in my heart? You think it's that important? And Paul says, yes, the gospel is concerned with your feelings, not just your actions. Now, why, though? Why? Here's why. Because Paul knows the dangerous path. All right, here's another picture. If, if you've read Pete Cesaro's book, Emotional, uh, Emotionally Healthy Christianity, you got it for me, Nate? He, here's what he kind of ma- he makes the case in that book that this is an iceberg, in case you don't know what it is. And, and because of buoyancy, because of the density between water and ice, that roughly 10% of the iceberg is visible. 90% of the iceberg is actually under the water. And he makes the case that what you see, what's visible, when I see behavior and and what we're doing, he makes the case that doing is a function of what's going on beneath the surface, in the heart. And so there are a lot of things that might shape how we behave. Your your trauma, like being hurt in the past, it can make you a, a person who hurts people, right? That personality. That, that, that mental health, that family of origin, that culture, all of these things that, 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 are, that are beneath the surface, they sort of shape how we behave. He also talks about emotional health and the emotions that are in there. Now, I want to make the case to you that there's something even deeper than emotions, and it's a sinful heart. 
that even if all of this, you had positive family of origins, your cultural experience was awesome, if your parents stayed married for 50 years and all you saw was a loving, committed relationship, you would still be ratchet, right? <laughs> because the biggest problem underneath in there is not what happens to you. The biggest problem is our brokenness and our sin. But make no mistake about it that these things under there they matter. And so you can, you, can, you, can, you can kill it now, Nate. So for example, let's say a person is depressed, right? Depression, it, it's a, this overwhelming feeling, right? Let's say a person is lonely, that when there, there's loneliness and depression, it's going to bubble up and show itself, right, in behavior, right? That if you're depressed, then you might withdraw, that, that, that if I were to look at your life, you might be living in solitude, right? Something's going on beneath that's showing itself up in behavior. Now, why am I saying that? Would you agree with me that slander, and, and Paul uses the word clamor, he uses clamor and slander, just, just this loud, obnoxious, just bull in a china shop, just going in on people, giving people the peace of your mind, and then slander. Would you agree that those are outward behaviors, they're, they're actions? Of course they are. You can measure them with your five senses. This is behavior. Now, notice what Paul has to say. He actually has to say, put in verse 31, put away clamor and slander. These are actions. But notice again, where these actions come from. In chapter four, verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and malice be put away. Is bitterness and anger and malice, are those actions? They're not, they're feelings. To, to be angry at someone is a feeling, right? To be bitter when you hear someone's name, that sourness, that's a feeling, right? Wrath. We think that wrath is, a, is an action, but think about how superheroes use the term. You will feel the full brunt of my wrath. In other words, everything I am inside of here, I'm going to unleash it and you're going to pay for it. In other words, that's the connection. Because there is bitterness inside and because there is malice inside, because there is hostility inside, because there is anger inside, Paul says it's showing itself. It's coming out with how you're talking. It's coming out with what you're doing. You're slandering. You're gossiping. And you, you get it? What's going on beneath in the heart is starting to come out. That is precisely why Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, as the son of God, I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults you, you get it? The anger, whoever then insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You, you get what Jesus is doing? He's on a whole nother plane. They think you can keep this commandment just because you have never taken someone's life. And Jesus says, brother, sister, murder does not happen when you kill someone. Murder starts with how you feel about someone. You see the difference? 
Paul and Jesus are tracking on the same plane. The reason emotions matter, how we feel about one another, why it matters is because this path of anger and bitterness and sourness and malice left unchecked, it will show itself in gossip. It will show itself in slander. It will show itself in fights and quarrels and assaulting character. You get it? Paul is saying the path that you're on is a dangerous one. It's a really slippery slope. And here's the thing. There's an uninvited guest who shows up. See, it's not just you. It's not just how you feel leading to what you do or what we do. I'm putting myself in this as well, right? He also says there's an uninvited guest who runs to anger. Paul brings up Satan a few times in Ephesians. And this is one of the sections. This is one right here. Look at verse 26. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And right there in verse 27, and give no opportunity for the devil. In other words, right, you get you get what he's saying? When he brings Satan up, it's really worth listening to. And here's what he's saying. When we're malicious and when we're angry and bitter, he said, guess what? There's an uninvited guest who runs to that. And his name is Satan. And what he wants to do is push and fuel it. Look, if you have not read R.C. Sproul's Unseen Realities, I want to commend that to you. He has a, a, a really beautiful section on Satan and the demonic. And he basically says this. Look, we give Satan too much credit or we give him not enough credit, right? And he says, Satan is not omnipotent, right? He is not all powerful, but he's strong. We just sang it. Martin Luther wrote that hymn, on earth there is no equal. Now, make no mistake, he's not God. One little word from the Lord Jesus Christ will kill him, right? But at the same time, he's not a human. He's strong. He's not omnipresent, right? He can't be like right here with us right now and be in London right now. But he does roam the earth seeking whom he may devour. That's in the scriptures, right? He's a spirit. He's not human, but he's not like God. And here is what Paul is saying. Satan's frequency, his dial is set to your anger. For whatever reason, in the spiritual and heavenly places, when we're carrying this stuff, Paul says we're, we're, we're opening that door up for him to come in there and to instigate and to prod and to push and to do damage. You get it? The uninvited guest makes this path so dangerous. The other thing that makes this path so dangerous is the unexpected invitation. What is the invitation that summons him to the party? It's time, beloved. That's why Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving the opportunity to the evil one. You get it? 
You get it? What is the invitation? If you want to invite the enemy, the evil one, to come into the fellowship and to wreak havoc in the body, here is what you do. You harbor it, you leave the door open, and you never confront it, and you never forgive it, and you never talk about it. You just let it fester and fester and fester. I can guarantee you 100% of the time, the evil one will show up and will do work. You get it? That's why Paul is talking. That's why he is pleading with them to put this away. Like, 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 don't do this because the path towards murder starts as John Calvin says. Look at it in our, in our bulletin. This commandment forbids murder of the heart. As Calvin puts it, indeed, it is the hand that gives birth to murder, but it is the heart infected and inflamed with hate and anger that conceives it. You get it? Now, there's a part in here that's kind of confusing, and I've been wrestling with it all week. In Ephesians 4.26, Paul is in the imperative. He says, be angry and do not sin. Right? So he's commanding anger. He commands it. But then in verse 31, notice what he writes in verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. So, so wait a minute. Let me get this right. First, you command anger. And then three verses later, you tell me to put it away. Which one is it? Like, come on. You, you cannot be talking out of the side of your mouth. Right? You have to. What is it? I think Paul is making the distinction between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. In other words, in, in, in Ephesians 4, 26, he's saying, be angry about the things that deserve anger, but do not fall into sin, right? And then at the bottom, he's saying, hey, put away all anger, put away all anger that is unrighteous. Now, haven't we seen these two things in tension? What does the Bible say about Jesus? He is the exact imprint of the nature of the glory of God. What does John say about Jesus? No man has seen the Father, but the one who is at the Father's side has made him known. In other words, when you look at the authors of the New Testament, what they're telling us, if you want to see what God is like, you look at Jesus. And what we see in Jesus' ministry is righteous anger. When the Jews had turned the, 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 the court of the Gentiles into a place to, to exchange money. What did Jesus do? He went in there, turned the tables over, threw stuff, grabbed a whip, and he says, the zeal of the house of the Lord will consume him. And he's like, you sinners, you are turning my father's house into a den of robbers. It's to be a house of prayer for all nations. And the one space that Gentiles can come and worship, this is where you want to change your money. No, that is not all right. Righteous anger. Remember when Lazarus died and Jesus got there a few days late on purpose? And it says he was angry and he wept. And he says, where have you laid him? Lazarus come out of the tomb. Why was he angry there? Because he saw what sin did to his friend. He saw the, 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 what, what looked like the tyranny of the evil one that would do harm to God's people, right? That bothered him. You see it in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus is on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees come around Jesus. There's a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees kind of watch Jesus in the cut. They kind of watch him the whole time. 
What you going to do on the Sabbath? And then Jesus says to them, what does he say? He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm? To save her life or to kill? And you know what? They would not reply to him. That angered Jesus. Why did it anger Jesus? Because the Sabbath day, they had turned it into this day of not doing anything. And Jesus is saying, no, you're resting from worldly labors, but we're also resting in the Lord and seeking the good and help of those who need him. Therefore, don't size me up because I'm going to heal this man on the Sabbath day. This is what the Sabbath day is for. It's for the healing and the binding up of God's people. He got angry when you wanted to marginalize this man. He got angry when you wanted to use the law for, your, for our own ends. He got angry when, we, when, when people did that kind of stuff. Now, notice when he did not get angry. Does the Bible ever say he got angry when John the Baptist asked him when he's about to be beheaded? Are you the Christ? I need to know. He wants my head on a platter. I need to know. We're cousins. And I need to know, are you really the Christ? Jesus was not angry. He says, this is what you go tell John. Go tell John all that you've seen me do. He accommodated him in his weakness. Jesus was not angry when the disciples betrayed him in Gethsemane. He was hurt, but in terms of anger, the Bible does not say it. So get this image, get this portrait of God in our minds. He's angered when the glory of God is being trampled upon. He's angered when the good of man is, is treated as trivial. He is not angry when people struggle with faith. He's not angry. You get that? Now, Jesus isn't just God in the flesh. We also believe he's the prototypical human. In other words, we're to look at him and to look at his emotional capacity, to look at his emotional bandwidth and to look at him and say, yes, real humans grieve over death. Real humans cry when their friends die. Real humans can be consumed with the zeal of the Lord and righteousness. Right. You get it. In Jesus, you get righteous anger. And in Jesus, you don't get unrighteous anger. Here's our dilemma. We don't do any of that well. You, get, you ever thought about that? I got stole on one time. At a, if stole on me, somebody hit me. And they kind of snuck me, and I couldn't hit them back, right? And it, I, I didn't see it coming, right? Again, I was selling programs at Jackson State games, and I was, I was walking. I was a little kid. The guy was way bigger than me. And I was walking, carrying my programs, and I just, I was not looking. And I, I stepped on the back of his shoe, right? And he, like, he turned around and punched me, like punched me in the jaw, right? And turned around and kept going. That's, it's a puma, man. You get it? <laughs> It's a shoe. It's a shoe. Even if it was Jordan, right? 
On a more serious note, you hear about the two LSU fans killed by an Alabama fan because they lost the game. You, you see what I'm talking about? That's unrighteous anger. It's a football game. It's a shoe. You get it? And how many times have you and I been angry with someone over something equivalent to a shoe or a football game? That our reputation, our name is tarnished. It has nothing to do with Jesus. This is you offending me as a person. We're guilty. How many times should we be angry at righteous things and we're passive? We should be angry at injustice. We should be angry at racism. We should be angry at certain things, family. And I promise you, we just, we're not motivated. We're not moved. That is breaking the ethic of this commandment. How many times have you let the sun go down on your anger? How many times have you given Satan the room to come into your house and your marriage when we're having these fights and our tongues, we just kind of lose it, right? How many times have we let things just harbor and fester and fester and we run away from the church or run away from this body because we won't deal with this and we won't make time to sit down and work through this? You, when you look at the problem, Redeemer, we've all broken this law. Every one of us in the room. And that's what the law does. Before it builds you up, it cuts us down and it cuts. We're both murdered and we're murderous all at the same time. Now, what's the beautiful cure? Let's put this back in the perspective of anger within the body. Put this back in that realm. What is the cure? Now, typically what happens when we're angry at someone, we might change churches. Here's the thing. You're going to go there and the same thing's going to happen. Right? We might pull away. Well, I'm going to stay here, but man, I'm going to avoid that person. We're not going to even talk. You know, they teaching this Sunday school class. I'm going to this one over here. You get it? They in this ministry. I'm going to go to this growth group. Right? You get it? That's what we do. We, we avoid and we let it fester. But that is not what Paul commands in this text. Notice what he says in verse 32. He says, be kind to one another. Same verse, he says, forgive one another. These are actions. But where does the action come from? You see it in five, chapter, chapter 5, verse 2. He says, walk in love. In other words, when we love one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord, when deep love is there, it will show itself up in kindness, it will show itself up in forgiveness. Now, here's the bind. When we've been offended, I don't want to forgive, right? I want to hold it and I want to make you feel it. And I want to, you know, let's be really honest. 
How do we get from this place where our hearts are softened so that we can love, so that we can then go and do what Paul is commanding us to do? I love it because Paul says it himself. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another and look at that word right in the middle. Tender hearted forgiving one another. In other words, something has to go in there and soften that angry heart. And if something does not get in there and soften the angry heart, you won't feel how you're supposed to feel and you definitely won't do what you're supposed to do. So the question is, what does God do to go in there and soften hard hearts? That's the question. That's the cure. Something has to do with it, and it's not a something, it's a someone. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit to just check you? I mean to check you. I mean, when, when, when you see your own sin, and you're ready to unleash, and you're ready to harbor stuff, and you're ready to throw in the towel, and the Holy Spirit, as if it's a real person, and he is a real person, right? He is a real person who indwells his people, but he's, has he ever checked you? And what I mean by that is, is you're going on and on, you're talking to somebody about what they did, and, you, and, and you're festering, and you're fuming, and the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm tired of hearing it. I'm done. Now you sit down and you let me talk to you, right? Maybe not like in that tone, but your Holy Spirit, he might be sweet and tender. My, you know, he, you know, but you get it? He says, you know what, sit down. And maybe he's gentle. Sometimes he just do whatever he want to do, right? He says, you know what, let's park it for a minute. It's like, I'm tired, just stop. Stop talking about what they did. Now let me sit down with you. And let me tell you something. Do you think their offense against you compares to your offense against the Lord? Do you really think that what they did to you can measure up to what you do to the Lord with your own sin? You see, as long as we think our primary place to look and to deal is with the other person, you're missing something. We're missing something. When the Holy Spirit sits us down and says, wait a minute, I know you think that this is the problem. That's not the problem. The real problem is you and the Lord, and you're not giving the grace that you've been received, right? You're not giving and laying your anger and your thunder down in the way that your father has laid his down upon you. You're not loving in the way that your father has loved you. And therefore, if you're not receiving, if that doesn't break your heart, you will never treat one another with kindness. But when what Christ has done gets inside of that hard heart, you can forgive. And that's exactly what Paul says. Notice what he says, beloved. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Your heart is softened. By what? Forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. In other words, he hinges your, the, the way that we treat one another, not off of one another, but on the way that he treats us in Christ. And your father has forgiven you. Now you go forgive. You get it? Therefore, beloved, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
You're his. He is your father. He is saying, march like me, live like me, the way that I forgive you and put up with you and be patient with you. He says, give that to people and walk in love. Look at that phrase, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see what he does? The cure for anger is not 10 steps. The cure for anger is not this here. The cure for anger is the gospel. And we think too much of ourselves when we harbor and don't do it. We're like the people in the parable. Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Peter's like, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive him? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to give you a parable. There was this man who owed 10,000 talents to a master. And just in case you want to know, a talent is 20 years of labor. So multiply 20 years times 10,000. That's how much money you got. That's the debt. It's a really great debt. And the man owes the debt to this king and the king wipes it clean. And guess what that same servant does? He goes out and he hounds somebody because they owe him a hundred denarii. You know what a hundred denarii is? That's like you going to work for three months. Three months or 10,000 times 20, which one is the greater offense? And what Jesus says, it's a shame that your father in heaven can forgive you infinitely and eternally. And you have the audacity to gripe about a hundred days of labor. You see, he's asking, commanding us, family, that when we're angry with one another, don't run. Don't hide it. Deal with it. Forgive it. Because Christ has forgiven you and I. That's the cure for our anger. It's the gospel of Christ. And my prayer is when these moments come in this church, that you will make more of the gospel and we will make less of ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you that you are a really good father. We thank you that you forgive us and you're kind to us. We thank you that the, these kind acts toward us, they flow out of what Paul just says, that Christ loved us and therefore proved his love by giving himself up for us. Father, I pray that those who might not know you, might today be a day where they see that you are kind and gracious, that you welcome us. I pray for those in this room who might be harboring anger and bitterness and wrath. Might you make a place for deep reconciliation to happen where we can share and grieve and cry and be honest and that we can repent and that we can give grace, that we can model the love of Christ to one another. I pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.